Okay, this morning is uh, October 25th, 2009. It's, of course, Sunday morning. Our message this morning is going to be called Free Agency. Uh, I am not a big football fan, I promise you. Very few sports analogies this morning. It's just that uh, as I was thinking of a way to convey this concept this morning, I thought that this was a good way to do it. And uh, I want to read you something. This came from Wikipedia. Says in professional sports, a free agent is a player whose contract with a team has expired, who is eligible to sign with another franchise. Once in free agency, a player is in a pool of free agents, from which teams can sign players who are able to drive hard bargains in the employment marketplace, since their owners, their owners, must compete for their talents. As I began to think about that this morning, I've heard people lament. I came from a football family, you know, Division One football coaches and all of those things. I've heard people lament that free agency is ruining the game of football. I could care less what happens with the game of football. Honestly, it's hard to get excited about that when you think about eternal things. And there's nothing wrong. I know we've got football fans all over the place this morning. But I've heard people argue that free agency is ruining the game. And the reason they say it ruins the game is because a player no longer is associated with a franchise throughout his career. No longer does one player play for one team forever. In fact, there's kind of a selfish, self-centered thing where a player goes wherever he can simply get the most money without regard to the team. And as I began to read that, I had to laugh because the same problem plagues Christianity. It's amazing. Both Christianity and football have a draft. God himself uh, drafts people. John 6.44 says you cannot be saved unless the Spirit of the Father draw you. That sounds like a draft to me. The terms that describe Israel and then the church have to do with a group of people who have been assembled, not simply who fell together or had like policies or a similar political ideology. People who were drafted for a purpose. When you think about this, there are two terms that you need to know. Uh, you won't have to, uh, there will be no test on this, but you need to know them because sometimes English uh, does little to convey the beautiful nuances of the language of the Bible. And whether we're talking about Greek or Hebrew, both of these words I'm going to give you are, are just more descriptive than the word church. When you think of church, a lot of concepts come to mind. You think of something that you have membership in. You, you might think of a, a group of people with a doctrinal set of beliefs that everybody adheres to. And that makes a church. The Bible has no such word as church. Now, I know in your, like if you're reading NIV or some of you New King James, you'll see the word church there. But you need to understand Jesus was not an American. Jesus did not come from Britain. Uh, Jesus did not speak English. His name was not even... Jesus. It was Yeshua. And when Yeshua communicated, he did it in one of two ways. Either Hebrew, which is the language Jews pray in, write in, read, or Greek, which would be the trade language of the world at the time. And if he were speaking of a group of people that we would think of as the church, he wouldn't use a word like church. In Hebrew, it was quahal. I'll give you Strong's definitions and those things later. But quahal meant the group of people that God has called from among the nations and separated out as His very own. 
In Exodus 19, he calls the Quahal, the assembly, he calls them his treasured royal possession. A distinct or peculiar people belonging to the Lord. 1 Peter 2.9, Peter picks that up and applies that to the church of God. Right? The same group of people. If Jesus were speaking Greek, which the New Testament comes to us in, the word would be ecclesia. And ecclesia in Greek means those who have been called into an assembly for a specific purpose. That's entirely different than we think of church. Where do you go to church? Well, I warm a pew here. I have accepted this doctrinal statement here. We think of church sometimes even as a building. (laughs) What's so funny is for the first 40 years that Israel existed, there was no building. Period. Then we go all the way through the time period of the prophets and the judges. I'm sorry, the judges prior to the kings. And we don't even have a temple. For the majority of quote-unquote church history, there was no building of any kind. There simply was the presence of God in His people, and the people were the Quahal or the Ecclesia. That's different. Where do you go to church? What do you mean go to church? I am church, if we use the word properly. But doesn't that sound sound strange, say I am church? This is one of the ways in which the English word really doesn't convey what we need. Turn with me to Genesis 28. I want to give you a couple of its original usages. And see how this will shed some light on our understanding of what God's called you to. In Genesis 28, tell me when you're there. We'll pick up in the first verse. Alright, so the left side of the room is all there. Bob, do you make it there? About there. (laughs) Alright, getting there. Genesis 28, we're going to pick up in the first verse. So Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him. And he commanded him, Do not marry a Canaanite woman. Go at once to Padan Aram, to the house of your mother's father, Bethuel. Take a wife for yourself there from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers. Doesn't that sound a lot like what was said to Adam and Eve? Bless you, increase you in numbers. Hmm. And increase your numbers until you become... A community of peoples. May he give you your may he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham, so that you may take possession of the land where you now live as an alien, the land God gave to Abraham. The Bible is largely a story of starting with a people, uh, a mother and a father, causing them to become fruitful and increase in number until this family that grew from two people is now a family, and the family as it grows becomes a community. Think about the bonds that exist there that are different than in a church. You can show up in a church and not know a single person there. Now, if you're born of the same spirit as the church and the church the same spirit as you, you feel like you've known each other all your lives after you talk a while. But I'm just talking about a traditional setting, a traditional church. You can show up there, and it's not the same as being at a family reunion. You can walk in and nobody hug you. You can walk out and nobody have said hi to you. That's a shame because that's not what the church is or was designed to do, but it can happen and that's our traditional concept. But the Bible concept of quahal and assembly is something that started with two people, their love, their intimacy, their relationship with God, and grew to be 
more than two people. They had children. And then more than that. And more than that. And this way, they were called households. And then tribes. And then out of tribes, a nation that God called a pohol, an assembly. People that all had a certain familial community, if you will. Y'all, that's different than showing up somewhere and just being a member. Anybody in here a member of AARP? No, raise your hand. Right? Anybody in here a member of the YMCA? But would you give your life for them? Would they give their life for you? I mean, aren't you happy if you're a member of something and they print their benefits on the card when they actually do it? Right? You ever call AAA and nobody showed up? Right. You ever call your pastor and he didn't return your phone call? The idea, the basis for a Hebrew person speaking the word kohol was something that grew out of a bond like a father and a son or a mother and daughter would have. In fact, the ancient Hebrew sages said things like the bond of a teacher and student, speaking of the assembly of the Lord, is greater than that of a father and son or mother and daughter. And if you think of the words of Jesus, they echo that. If you don't love me more than your mother and father, you're not worthy of the kingdom, he said. This was because there is an assembly that God is calling that supersedes all other bonds in your life. You understand? Turn with me then to Exodus 12. Here is called a community of peoples. But just a community of... There you go, brother. Just a community of peoples is not enough. You can be uh, all of the same family, and that's not enough. If you've been to some of the family reunions like I have, in mine there are too many El Caminos, uh, beverages that are hidden in paper, and uh, after an hour in, nobody's nice to each other anymore, you know? Uh, you can be a community based on familial concepts, and that's not enough. I mean, the truth is, sometimes nobody can be uglier to you in your life than your family, right? But it is the pattern and the place to start. Now look at what he says in Exodus 12, starting in uh, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel... That on the tenth day of this month, I want you to understand that there is perfect justification for saying, tell the whole church of Israel. The same word here, when translated in Hebrew as kohal, if the Old Testament were written in Greek like the Septuagint is, it would say ecclesia. Those two words, when we translate into English in a New Testament setting, it's church. Exact same thing. Our writers here uh, have called it community. But it's the same exact concept. Tell the community of Israel. So we have moved from just Jacob, who had a community of peoples, a big family, to now a community that is called Israel. It is a nation of people. We've gone from a man and his 12 sons to something that has grown way beyond that, but all having a a consistent character. Do you remember what Israel means? Prince with God. So now we have an assembly of people. They're not Egyptian, although an Egyptian could join and become an Israelite. They are not Canaanite. They are not Norwegian or American. And yet there were provisions where people could lay aside their national identity and take on another identity and join the community that God was building, called the Ecclesia, called the Quahal, the group of people who are drafted for a specific purpose. It was a once 
for a lifetime kind of thing. You didn't join Israel and the next week decide you didn't want to be a part of Israel. In fact, to join Israel, blood had to be shed. You had to be baptized. They called it a mikvah. So that when you proselytized yourself or you became an Israelite, you took on a new identity. Once, forever. This idea of something that grew out of a family and into a larger group called a nation was a permanent blood relationship that would never change. Now, when you think of church, do you think of a permanent blood relationship that would never change? And yet it's the same word. How about that? In fact, pick up the book of Revelation sometime. How many churches are addressed in the first few chapters? Seven. And they're church of Thessalonica. Church of Ephesus. The church of... There was only one church there. How does that work? You mean they didn't get to drive up and down Eldridge and pick like Piccadilly? Y'all don't have Piccadillys here. I'm sorry. I'm from Louisiana. Pick like Lubies? How did that work? The word Catholic means universal. And there is one universal church in many locations. I'm not sure the people sitting in the United Nations uh, and seated in the Vatican have got the monopoly on it that church history claims that they did. But there is one universal called out people, and it is a lifetime commitment. How temporary do we often view our commitments to any church? I'm here for a while. I'm just kind of checking it out. Now, I, I want to acknowledge something up front. If you don't hear the whole message, it could sound cultish to talk about such a lifetime commitment. I, I understand that. I promise we'll bring balance to that. Jesus, at times, said things that if you didn't hear him out, they didn't make much sense. Like, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And because people weren't willing to consider the source, most left. Right? There is an assembly that God is, is building. And it is something bigger than just agreeing to like ideals. It's something that is familial, that is community-oriented. Look at Deuteronomy 23 with me. See, I put them in order for you. Isn't that great? You can work from left to right. Deuteronomy 23. Uh, Let's start in verse 3. Oh, I guess I'll not shy away from it. We'll start in verse 1. You'll see why I wanted to start in verse 3 here in just a minute. No one who has been emasculated, boy, you don't hear that in church often, by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly, that's church, ecclesia, quahal, of the Lord. No one born of a forbidden marriage, nor any of his descendants may enter the assembly, church, of the Lord, even down to the tenth generation. No Ammonite, Moabite, or any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. We go on and on and on with restriction after restriction, some which were very severe and some which were not so severe, about entering the assembly of the Lord, the community of the Lord. There is a community that is family, there's a community, there is a nation, and the whole thing is called the assembly of the Lord, meaning the group that God has assembled for himself. And I want you to understand, he has been selective. When he started this nation, it was based on a national and familial identity. It was based upon not just a like group of beliefs, but even a common ancestry. 
That chart on the wall starts with Adam and shows the ancestry of Jesus called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah and chronicles it all the way through because the Messiah's called out group of, of believers, the assembly that was pulled out of the nations would start with a specific family. A family in Israel. A family from 12 tribes and then of the tribes from Judah. Why we call him the Lion of the tribe of Judah. It was much, much later in history that on a mass scale, people who had no ethnic, no racial, no national association with Israel could come and become a part of this. And I'm one of them. Just a purebred mutt Gentile who has been grafted into the love of Jesus. But we need to understand that since the community's inception, it has always had both a strong commitment that was lifelong and it has always had a strict set of standards. How about that? Can you imagine? Uh, I, I went to a Messianic congregation here in Houston that I think highly of. I'm excited. But they have a list of requirements that you must meet simply to sit in their assembly. Because they're not interested in people sitting in their assembly. They're interested in people joining their family. And for them to join the family of God in that way, they all need to be working from some basic, uh, generally accepted, common goals. That's different than the way we think of church, isn't it? Sometimes our church commitments are so temporary. If you do what I like, then we're all committed to each other. If you don't do what I like, then I will go right down the road. And if they do what I like, I'll stay. If they don't do what I like, I'll go. And our church resume looks like our secular resume. 18-month cycles. Six months, we're infatuated. Six months, we become proficient. Six months, we become discontented, bored, and move on. Right? This ought not be. Jesus is not a windshield wiper that changes his mind every day of the week. He is not a leaf that is blown to and fro by the wind. Maturity in Christianity... Maturity in the assembly of the Lord means that you recognize a calling even when you don't understand all of the circumstances. Come on, saints. Do you think American Christianity could benefit from that message? The Protestant Reformation was beautiful. Amazing. Sola Scriptura. I want to be led by Scripture alone. And if it had just been that, that would be awesome. But how many times has it splintered since then? You can find a church of every possible variation in the world right here in Sugar Lake. I heard a man say, I don't go to that church. That's a black church. Really? How does a black church work? Because I thought Jesus was Jewish. I don't go to that church. It's a white church. How does that work? If it's still based on any of those carnal things, then how did any of us get in it since we're not first century Jewish carpenters? By its very nature, the fact that we're sitting here, and most of us, although some are, most of us are not Jewish, means that we've laid those, those things aside in favor of a higher calling, doesn't it? I was told one time that a church was racist. I had to laugh. There can't be a church and be racist. That's not possible. By its definition, now you can be a building with membership, but you cannot be a believer in Jesus. <laughs> First John says, and hate your brother. It's not possible to hate your brother that you can see and love God that you can't. 
Period. So are there really racist churches? No. No, there's, there's racist buildings full of people. Hmm. How about that? Turn me to 1 Corinthians. There are three uses of this word, church of God, in the New Testament. There. Paul founded the, the church at Corinth, and when he founded it, you might say he carved it right out of the earth. This uh, place had more than a thousand pagan temples in it. Uh, the word Corinthianized in Greek, Corinthianized, meant to prostitute yourself. You literally asked, like an act that you would pay for would be to be Corinthianized. You follow me? It was equivalent with the word for fornication. How would you like all throughout the whole known world for your hometown to be associated with that? Well, I did live near New Orleans. Yeah, right. It's close. What a place to start a community of believers. Right? In 1 Corinthians, the first verse, I'm sorry, first chapter, look at the second verse. To the church of God. That word, church of God, is the quahal of Yahweh. In Hebrew, that's how you would say it. Quahal Yahweh. Meaning, those who God drafted personally and assembled together for a common purpose. Now, this didn't come to us in Hebrew, it came to us in Greek. It would be Ecclesia to Theos. Those who had been uniquely drafted by God and assembled here. When you see the word Church of God on a sign, and people see their commitment there as temporary, see it as not familial, not blood-related, not lifelong... The English doesn't do it justice. Paul only uses this term three times in all of the word. He uses it in his second letter. We're not going to read that one. But look at this one. Look at Acts 20. We'll be in the 28th verse. Listen to the sense in which he uses it. Many of you who love Paul like I do have a hard time reading this chapter without crying because he's addressing the Ephesian elders and it has become painfully aware to him that they're never going to see him and he is never going to see them again in this life. He knows that he's being poured out like a drink offering. And what does he take the time to tell them? It's the first use of this word in all of the Bible. Acts 20, look at verse 28. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. The city in which he's speaking of this worshipped Artemis. He says in a few more years, savage wolves are going to rise up. Do you know that in that city, in the year 431, a church council met and declared Mary to be the mother of God? In the same place that they had worshipped Artemis as deity? For years and years and years, hundreds of years. You think it's a coincidence that both sects, S-E-C-T-S, had celibate priesthoods? You think it's a coincidence that both women were considered to be perpetual virgins? You think that's a coincidence? There is one assembly of the righteous that God has drafted. He bought them with his blood, not with a church sacrament. He bought them with his blood, and he has called them together in different locations around the world, but one body. 
That commitment is firm. It is lasting. And here's the best part. It is with purpose. Ephesians 2 says that he saved you to do the good works which he prepared in advance for you to do. So if the Lord of the universe calls you to be a part of whatever church is closest to us up the road on the right, and it is his calling, there is work for you to do as part of that assembly. The same way that any member of a family has a role within the household of the family. These Ephesian elders that he's talking to, what was their role? To oversee. In our democracy-laden land, we don't like that. We don't like that every man's voice is not absolutely equal in our assemblies. We would like the assembly of the Lord to look like the assembly of the United States, a democracy with voted leaders. But the problem is, this book was not written by Americans. It is an Eastern book, written, and we are Western people reading it, and we need to realize the culture was different. And God chose to communicate through that culture for a reason. They did not vote to see who their overseers were. They didn't form a search committee and decide who had the best fundraising practices, who was a visionary CEO-like leader. The word says Jesus gave some, appointed some, to be apostles. Some to be prophets, some to be teachers, some to be pastors, and some to be evangelists for the maturing of the body of Christ until we have all reached complete unity in the faith. You can read about that in Ephesians 4. But is that what you think of when you hear the word church? When's the last time you were in a church and somebody's business card said prophet? (laughs) But you'll find one that says pastor, won't you? Why? Is one less biblical than the other? Oh, dear God, we'll get in trouble with this. And how about apostle? Is one less biblical than that? Well, we were taught they all died off. Really? When did the last one die? We start with 11. Judas croaks. We get a 13th. Matthias. Then, by the way, Andronicus and Junus. How many of you can name them from Romans 16? They were apostles. You keep going through church history in the word, in the book, alone. There are 23 mentioned by name. When did the last one die? Never. Never. The church is a community of believers that functions a lot like a family on a larger scale. And there has to be structure to it. God flows through authority. To the extent that we recognize that and we move in it, we are blessed by it. To the extent that we are toxically independent. The Bible says we're under a curse. A church is a community or family with an organized leadership structure that has divine purpose. It is not like membership in a club or political ideology. Let me show you since Israel was the forerunner. The assembly in the wilderness was the forerunner of what we now call the church of God. Look at a couple things they were told. Turn back to Deuteronomy 12. Hey, if you would rather me put on pom-poms and just tell you you're all champions. We could do that. I don't know if you'll be any better for it, but we could do it. And I bet we could fill seats doing it. Our church has got to be unique in the sense that we have filled all these seats many times. Give us enough time and we'll run off half. In this way, I will get to pastor all of Houston eventually. We'll just do it 35 or 40 at a time. 
No, my hope is to assemble the people that God has called for us. I don't need to assemble all of Houston. What we need is for those that God has assembled to us. And we want no more than we can help mature. We want no more than we can help to find out the good work they were called to do. What good does it do to assemble thousands of people who know no more after leaving your church about what they were called to do than they did before they got there? They may feel better about themselves. They may have been entertained. Maybe if the pastor is much better looking than me. Maybe if the services are done in such a way that it is almost rapturous to be there. It would be a wonderful emotional experience, but the point of the assembly was to affect the world. Not just to affect the emotional state of the people. I'm not picking on any assemblies. I'm talking about us. It's funny that our denominations choose such names. The Assembly of God. Really? Is there only one? Yes, there is only one globally. Are you sure you have the monopoly on it? Roman Universal Church, really. Roman Catholic Church, really. That's who God entrusted the Universal Church to? To the Roman Empire? Where do you find that in the Word? You don't find that for 400 years after Jesus' death. In fact, the same one who was drunk on the blood of the saints suddenly claimed ownership of the saints. And then claimed the power to call some saints... And others not. When the Word declares, you are a saint. We make it all the way into 1,960 years after Jesus' birth. And then we desaint some folks. How does that work? That's such an easy target to pick on. I don't want to do that. I love Catholic people. I was raised in Louisiana. I never met anybody that wasn't. I'm not very fond of that particular assembly. Because there is nobody responsible for the murder of more Bible-believing Christians throughout history. Not even Islam. And yet, many who have never burned a Christian at the stake have burned everybody in their minds at the stake that they didn't agree with. And I don't want to do that either. I simply want to find out who's drafted to be a part of this common purpose. And how on earth can we help you achieve it? Are you in Deuteronomy 12? Yes. Deuteronomy 12... Look at the 8th verse. You are not to do as we do here today, everyone as he sees fit, since you have not yet reached the resting place and the inheritance the Lord God has given you. There was a time in Israel's history where the assembly was marching somewhere. And while they are marching, progressing to the place where God's name would dwell, when they wanted to make a sacrifice, they did. It might be in this area of the Sinai Peninsula this time, this area another time. God said, there's coming a day when you must, must not do simply as you see fit. That word never made it to the American church. Because we sit in complete judgment of an entire ministry while sitting on the front row. And, depending on how they relate to us on a personal level, not their work in the world at large, not their ministry to the vast majority of the people, how does what they do affect me personally? We decide to include ourselves or not include ourselves. Here's the question that really needed to be asked. Were you called by the living God to be a part of the assembly or not? Because if you were, it's a little bit like being in a family. Do you always agree with dad in a family? Do you always agree with mom? 
Do you always like your brother and sister? Probably not. But it is the family that you were born to. And can you choose your family? Since you're really not going to like this, let me tell you what else you cannot do. You cannot choose the Quahal or the Ecclesia. If you are choosing it, you are Lord of you, and He is not Lord of you. It is the assembly of His choosing in your life. We are not allowed to do everyone as He sees fit. This kind of independence I've named toxic independence. It is wrong to simply decide for yourself what is best without regard to the community or the family of Yahweh. The root of this behavior always brings a curse because in its very essence it is self-governance rather than lordship. One day when the tapes are played, Eric is going to have to give an account for every time I said this is God. And then later, said, I think, you know, we're doing a new thing. Or that wasn't God. Or now God has done this. We make God a schizophrenic to avoid shining the light on our own fickle nature. There is no church in the world worse than the charismatic community with this. One hears from God this direction. Another hears from God that direction. And it depends on whether the rain is falling or not falling. God's calling does not depend on such things. And the work of God suffers. There are times in which God will equip 12 men for a task. And when one does not reach his calling, what does God have to do? Because the work is still there. It was ordained before time. It was ordained before time. So what does God have to do? Raise up a replacement. Saints, I don't know whether I'm a replacement pastor for you. Because somebody didn't do what they were supposed to do. Or whether I'm the one of the original design. I just want to be the way that God's called me to be. I want to be a good one. Now let me ask you something. When you come to be a part of an assembly of the Lord, do you get to do as you see fit? Or are you supposed to find your design within the assembly? And like? Dislike? Comfortable? Not comfortable? None of that makes any difference. Brother Steve and I function in a community. There are times I say and do things that he's not all that comfortable with. He prays about it, tries to get the mind of the Lord, and we can disagree within a family. Within a community, a disagreement is not a schism. In fact, it's welcomed. Has there ever been a husband and wife that did not disagree? And often the outcome is better than if they had both simply kept the matter to themselves. But the security that you have in a family... It's because of a disagreement you don't cease to be part of the family. Wow, if the church of God had that, do you think that we would have 30 churches on this road? If you were allowed the security and love of being able to disagree without being excommunicated? Now there are some things, of course, that are not disputable. But doesn't Romans 14 tell us to avoid passing judgment on disputable matters? Is the color of the church carpet really worth being torn out of a family over? You get to serve in the assembly that you were called to, but if you don't get to serve in the way that you think you should, is that really worth being torn out of a family over? Well, I feel called to pick up the red trash cans. Well, I feel particularly called to pick up the white ones. Well, let's go start two different assemblies over that issue. Does that really seem reasonable? It happens all of the time. 
I've never been a part of a church that the devil did not try to split. Never. Everyone as he sees fit. A toxic independence. There's a beautiful symmetry in the word. Deuteronomy 12 says you can't all do as you see fit. Deuteronomy 13, that toxic independence. Also, Deuteronomy 12 is a toxic independence. I'll do whatever I want to do. Deuteronomy 13 discusses a toxic dependence. This is where we bring balance to a message that keeps it from being cult-like. Where one group of people are esoteric in their knowledge and they are all in control of your future. The Bible does not present that at all. Look at Deuteronomy 13. If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a miraculous sign or wonder, and if the sign or wonder of which he has spoken takes place, and he says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. Did you hear this? This is different than you might think. Usually you hear the test of a prophet is, if what he says doesn't come to pass, don't listen to it. Here he said, if what he says comes to pass, but he advocates something other than the way that you have known, you may not listen to him. This means that you could raise the dead, you could call down fire from the skies, but if you advocated idolatry, you were not allowed to follow that person. Listen to what he says God is doing. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you will love him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. God does that? Well, apparently so. From the very beginning, the assembly of people he's called out, he is constantly refining. To the point where Paul looks back on Israel's history and says, not all who are Israel are Israel. Not all who were assembled actually were assembled before the Lord. Some were just the crowd. Let me ask you something about circles within circles. Jesus had how many apostles? Twelve. But at one time he sent out 72. And another time he fed 5,000. Doesn't that sound like groupings within groupings? The day he was crucified, how many were there? A handful of women and one man. Where it says more than 500 saw Jesus resurrected at one time, and yet there's only 120 in an upper room praying. How does that work? Saw a man resurrected from the dead. 500, 120. Do the math for me. Where did the other three have? <coughs> it's always been this way, saints. Always. There are two kinds of problems that relate to self-governance. One is, I will do whatever I see fit and nobody can stop me. That's prevalent in America. It's part of our independent spirit, right? Although I want you to think about even our Declaration of Independence. It doesn't say... I, in order to form a more perfect singularity, says we, the people, in order to form a more perfect union, they were acting as a community in the best interest of a community that was different in location from the people that were governing them. You follow me? But we think nobody can govern us but us. Nobody. The Word does not teach it that way. And the opposite is... Well, fine. I'm just doing what that, that preacher on the radio told me to do. Well, I don't know. Some televangelist said to do this. Like we abdicate all responsibility to hear from God, to know anything about God, in favor of a church leadership. Friends, that is cultish. The truth is, is that the Bible presents absolutely both. You are neither independent to make your own decisions 
irrespective of everybody else, nor are you so dependent that others make your decisions for you. What is the answer to that question? To be in a community where you're all accountable to each other, where you all care about each other, where you are considering the consequences of your actions not just for your own life, but the lives of other people around you as well. Community is the answer, and if you don't think that it's presented that way in the Word, tell me something. How about Luke 24? You can turn that. In Luke 24, well, I better read it to you, huh? Anybody got Luke 24 memorized? Okay, we'll read it. I don't have to memorize. In Luke 24, we begin to see the way in which the church worked through some difficult issues through community, with a balance between toxic independence and toxic dependence. You don't have to swing to either end of the pendulum to walk with God. Jim Jones is asking you to drink Kool-Aid. That's a way that you have never served God before. It's a way you've not known. It's idolatrous. And you have an obligation, even if the man has miraculous powers at his disposal, to say no. But at the same time, if God has called you to a family of believers, and the overseers there say, Brother, I think something's wrong here. You are not independent of their judgment. The Word does not present that. In fact, you are all dependent on each other. You're a community, a family. The same way that the Piro clan is a family. Can you imagine if Sydney woke up tomorrow and said, I don't think I'm going to listen to mom or dad anymore. I know I was birthed here. I know that they've cared for me all these years. And I know thus far they've done good by me, but now all of a sudden, I think what I'd like to do is go be part of the Stevens family. And I don't particularly care whether mom and dad like it or not. I have the right to do this. And Christians do it every day. Every day. Many of you have done it. What I have found is that when you see that it's a pattern in somebody's life, you're next on the list. When somebody can't maintain good relationships with the people around them, you know who they don't have a good relationship with? God. Because one is just like looking into a mirror. If adversity and strife and turmoil follows you everywhere you go, you might consider that one more change of venue is not going to help. It might be a problem with you. That sobering revelation actually got me born again. All of my life, certain things followed me, and violence was one of them. And my parents were sure if we take him out of this school and put him in this school, if we get him away from those people. Have you noticed those people or whoever is not yours? Right? Have you ever met a parent that said, my kid is the bad crowd your kids hang around with? Every parent says, little Johnny, little Susie's just in with the bad crowd. Well, if every parent says that, who is the bad crowd? How does that work? Churches work the same way. My problem was that pastor, that assembly, those people. Really? And yet God called you there? My favorite question to ask people is, when did God call you away? When did he speak to you? Well, it was when, and it's always an offense, always an injury. Is that how God calls you? God speaks to you through your anger, your hurt feelings. When it's done right, though, usually there is some meeting in the middle where pastor says, I can see that it's time for you to move on. You've been a blessing to this family. I don't know what we're going to do without you. You're indispensable. And yet I want God's will for your life. Didn't y'all see that with Nick and Lindy Slaughter? Did it make 
perfect. No, no more perfect than the ministry team here. But we all move together for the blessings and glory of God. Unfortunately, that's a rarity. It's a rarity. Look at this. In Luke 24, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning. I'm going to run out of time. Let me tell you what happens. Is that fair? If I, if I give you source information, and since I almost never lie when I preach, you can go back and look. And if I was wrong, you can throw a hymnal at me. Okay? You can burn the, the pews and crash the stained glass and pull down the steeple. We don't have any of those things. <laughs> early on the first day of the week, the most monumental thing that has ever happened in the history of the world happens. Jesus is resurrected. And who in the community does he show himself to? He picks the highest. Those that are endowed with the most authority, right? Now he goes right to the bottom of the social ladder. He picks women. And then when you read this account, you're going to find out something. Actually, you have to read this one and Matthew. You can read Matthew 27 along with it. They see angels and they see Jesus. And they go straight to the apostles. Why did they do that? Why was it not enough for them to say, I've received a revelation. I have heard from God. Me, me, me. Because they were a part of a community. The first thing they did with their revelation was bring it to the others in the community. And they started with the head of the community. They started with the apostles. And they said, we saw Jesus. He said, we're supposed to go to Galilee. They didn't just take off to Galilee themselves. They came and told the community what had happened to them personally. <laughs> you know what the community did? Your words don't make any sense. You're kind of hysterical. Uh, your words sound like nonsense to us. That's written right there in Luke 24. The actual words mean, mean you're speaking to us like a frantic woman. Because what it says. How insulting is that? But Peter went out to verify. He went out to investigate. Well, if it sounded like nonsense, if it was just the rantings of a hysterical woman, why did he go investigate? Because he too had an obligation. Because they were in community with one another. This is like his family telling them him this. He can't just disregard it, no matter how untrue he thought it was. And guess what he found out? <coughs> they were right. In Luke 9, Jesus sends out 72 people. They go do amazing things. And then do you know what they do? They go back and report to Jesus. They go bring to their community leader the events of their lives so that they can all sort through them together and determine where God's favor dwells. These people who were arguably endowed with the lowest level of authority were entrusted with the highest revelation that mankind had ever been given. In community, all are equal in the sense that all can hear from God. We're just not equal in the way of function. They had been given the most powerful revelation the world had ever known, but they brought it to the feet of the apostles because the apostles were in charge of the community of believers maturing. It mattered to them what they thought. The women were independent enough to receive their own revelation. They didn't have to go ask anybody. But the apostles were also dependent enough upon the women's testimony to go investigate it. There is a wonderful symbiotic relationship that occurs here. Neither one was an island to themselves. 
Neither one claimed that all power and all authority were invested in them alone. Instead, they brought the issues of their lives before the community of believers and then worked within the framework that God designed to advance the kingdom. Did it work well? If it didn't, why are you here? How did you get here? How did you hear about Jesus? The report this woman brought because she handled it in the right way has gone all the way around the world. Was it humbling for them? Sure. Would it have been the method that they had chosen? Probably not. But doesn't God often do that? In Acts 10 and 11, there's another story. You don't have to turn there. We're going to finish up here in the next few minutes. But I think it's important that you get these. I really do. Somewhere in one of these, maybe a little light bulb will go off in your head as to how your life could be affected by it as opposed to everybody outside of this building. Because I'm convinced that this message probably is not for the church down the road or God would have given it to them. Probably for us. And it's why God gave it to me. Right? I know personally I need to hear it. In Acts 10, Peter does something that had never been done. The people who were given all the exclusive identity rules about who can enter the assembly, now the Lord of the assembly, because it's his assembly, decides to mix up the rules a little bit. He says, hey, don't you call these people outside of the assembly of Israel unclean. I'm going to do something here. Don't you call them unclean. And how did he speak to them? Through food, right? I'm glad to see that at least one of the apostles shared my weakness for food. So Peter goes and does this, and what happens? God's approval falls in an amazing way. They get baptized in the Holy Ghost. They're all speaking in other tongues. Nobody can deny this is God. What does the very next chapter heading say? Anybody know? Peter explains his actions. Why? Why does Peter have to explain his actions? Because he's a member of a community. And what he does affects them. And what they do affects him. And this is the way God designed it. He is neither independent of them, nor is he dependent on them to an unhealthy level. They are all in a family of God together. And it's a blood, lifelong commitment. Acts 15 is the best example I could see. So it's the one we're going to focus on. Turn to Acts 15. We'll be in the first verse. The preeminent issue of the first century was what is the Gentile role in a Jewish church? That's ironic since today it's exactly the opposite. Is there a role in the Gentile church for Jews? That's somewhat changing into my lifetime, but that has been the issue. Judaism and Christianity have been seen as mutually exclusive when the truth is they are of exactly the same root. This early church is facing this issue. There could not be a more contentious issue to have. What are the requirements of new adherence to our assembly? And do you remember that we read some in Deuteronomy 23 that were pretty restrictive? It even described the way in which some of your private parts had to be? I would say that's pretty restrictive. Now they're discussing this. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. I bet it did. A dispute broke out. Well, if a dispute broke out, the American model is they formed two separate churches. A dispute broke out, they don't agree. So that's a deal breaker. We're going to agree to disagree and go our separate ways. Except this is not the American church. This is not an American book. This is a Hebrew book that is based upon an assembly that God called 
And they don't have the right to exclude people and cut it up and divide it and just take their ball and go home. That is not their view of what this is. So what did they do? Look at the fourth verse. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. A dispute broke out, so what did they do? They go to the community of believers and they lay it out before the leadership in the hearing of everybody. See, the difference between a schism and a dispute that God can bless is a schism is everybody takes their bowl and they go play somewhere else, regardless of what God's will is. doesn't matter that two weeks ago, God confirmed to me in an overwhelming way I'm supposed to be here. Now I don't like what he's doing, so I'm leaving. That's a schism. Can you imagine if Matthew and I did that? It could be a surprise to you, but every once in a while we disagree about something. The difference between our disagreements and a schism is when we disagree, it is as a family. There is not even a question that our relationship will end over it. There is not a question that we break up and go our separate ways. And in the assembly of God, there is not either. In the quahal of God, you are called by His Spirit to be a part of it for the good work that He prepared in advance for you to do, Ephesians 2.10. And you don't have the right to simply go somewhere else. The dispute breaks out, so they begin to report it. Look at the 13th verse, what happens. 12th verse. The whole assembly. I wonder why they didn't call it a church. That's an American invention. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. This assembly belongs to God, not you. You understand the difference? If you determine when you're included and when you're not included, it belongs to you. If God determines it, it belongs to God. How many of you think your dog belongs to you? Hmm? You can answer me. How many of you think your dog belongs to you? Are you going to accept him telling you when he will and won't reside at your house? How many times is he going to run off before he's not welcomed back? Matthew. Matt had a dog one time that he welcomed out the door. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as is written. Look at 19. It is my judgment, therefore. I want you to understand the method for solving disputes in church and in your family and in your marriage and in your relationships with other believers is first, you identify the dispute, Right? You give a detailed report over it so that everybody understands it. You lay it before the community, caring about how it affects every person in it. If Brandon's called to play this drum and he gets mad at me tomorrow, does it affect only me if he walks out the door? It affects everybody who doesn't get to hear what he's called to do, huh? You consider how it affects the community. You're not so selfish as to only look at how it affects your life. That's the difference between self-governance and God's governance. And then here's what else we do. Those who are in authority, and we all have different levels of authority, 
My son Judah has a level of authority within my house. My wife has another level of authority. And I have another. Given to me by God. Didn't ask for it. It's just the way God designed the family. And whatever judgment any authority renders, it better be in agreement with the word. He said, brothers, the prophets are in agreement with the scenario that this faction is laying out. So it is my judgment as the leader of the community, this is the direction we're going to move. And do you know what? It stayed one community. One community. You don't read later about two churches in Jerusalem. In fact, we get all the way to Acts 21 and we have another dispute to solve over the same issue. But there are not two churches in Jerusalem. There is one community. Because there's only one group that God called out to be a part of the Jerusalem community. Can you see how far off base we have become in so many ways? If Israel had been a democracy, friends, they never would have left Egypt. When they did function as a democracy, the people chose Saul for their king. Democracy is not the answer to our problems. Theocracy, a God-ordained structure, is the answer to our problems. And you say, well, Eric, on a national level that doesn't work. Aren't you glad you're not the head of a nation? You don't have to worry about that. You know what you have to worry about? Your life and your community. You might say God is a community organizer. (laughs) Community works more like a family or a body of Christ. I have about four minutes left. I want to tell you about a direction of influence because this is important. In a membership-oriented group, in a, uh, well, you're not going to be a part of that dojo over there if you don't agree with the master. And they might force externally upon you their core ideals and beliefs or you're just excluded. A church, an assembly of the Lord, does not work this way. We don't say, for you to walk in that door, you must agree with this, 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 this. That would be an external direction of influence in your life. Taking what we are and shoving it down your throat, or you cannot be a part of us. The kingdom works the opposite way. His word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. The kingdom deposits something in you. And you begin to go, I don't understand, but I can see you have the words of life. And what was deposited in you begins to work outward. And not only does it work out of your life, what was deposited in you to your neighbors and the people around you in the book of Acts, it started in Jerusalem and moved to Judea and Samaria and then the ends of the earth. The direction of a kingdom influence is centrifugal. God does something inside of you and it begins to work through the whole loaf outward to the family, to the larger community. This only works when we're in personal relationship with each other. Otherwise, if I have so many people here, for instance, that I don't know this guy's name, and I don't know what's going on in his life at all, I am not able to deposit into his life something that grows out and then judge the fruit by which it's growing. What am I left with to do then? I can simply design a rule set that if he wants to be in our church, he must be adhering to. One is external and the other is internal and grows outward. One is discipleship, and the other is some kind of strange cookie-cutter thing that we've invented. Our goal is not to force you to do anything. Our goal is to teach you, to love you, to be a part of your family and you a part of ours until the kingdom is growing out of your life in a way that benefits everyone else. 
That's a whole lot more interactive than a lot of people want, though. That is a whole lot more personal than most people want. But isn't the gospel very much that way? Is he Lord of all of you? Or just some of you? Are you engaged in him in every way? Or do you have areas of your life where you say, nobody can rightly judge me, I don't want anybody to see, and it's none of their business? That is the spirit in which Cain killed Abel. And the Bible defines it as the way of Cain. You know, Paul loved the Corinthian church enough to be able to write to him, the church of God has no other practice than what I'm telling you. In other words, he had a relationship with them like a father to a son, he said. That he could tell them, if you're going to be a part of God's assembly, not just the assembly at Corinth, God's assembly. You can't do it any other way than I'm telling you. I need to close. But Paul had a son who was not his son. 1 Timothy 4, 6, he says, Follow the teachings which I've given you. Paul set an example as a father would for a son. And Timothy followed those. By the time you get to the 4th chapter in the 15th and 16th verse, he says, Timothy, I want you to do this so that everybody will see the progress in your life. We're all fine with people seeing the success in our life. Right? But to see progress, what do you have to see? Some failure. When's the last time members of a church were close enough to see failure in each other's lives so that they could see progress? We sit next to each other and say, I'm okay, you're okay, don't look too close at me and I won't look too close at you. We agree on the same 14 points of doctrine, so we're all good, right? A family's not that way. Have you ever sat at a table and nobody said anything and you knew something was wrong with your youngest son? How do you know that? Because you're his dad. You're in a family together. This is the forerunner of a church, and that's the way that it's supposed to work. Paul goes on to tell Timothy in his second letter, in the second chapter, find other reliable men, trustworthy men, and do for them what I've done for you. A community is something that is growing because what is put in you is working outwards centrifugally. That doesn't mean you can always measure the success by the growth. Bigger is not always better. Having said that, if you're not growing on an individual level, we're not doing our job. And if our church does not experience growth, at least on an individual level, we're not doing our job. We're not doing right. That doesn't mean we need every seat full. It means that what we need are people who are connected like they were in a family relationship, not independent of each other. And they're growing doing the things that God called them to do with the support and accountability of the others. Wouldn't that be an awesome thing? People join gangs for the very same reason. Satan has his alternatives. People go to the same bar. Why don't you go to a different bar every time you go into one? Why do they go to the same watering hole? We're all looking for a sense of community because God put it in us. The question is, will you be in the community God called you to even when it requires change and growth in your life. Because everybody wants to do it at Christmas time, right? Now stay on your feet, we'll pray. Deuteronomy 1, 16 and 17 says, if you have something that's difficult, bring it before the leaders in your community. The judgment that they give you, it says belongs to God. 
That doesn't make them God. In fact, they can be pretty messed up people, just like me. But if the community functions like it should, God will work through those fallible, flawed individuals to help you arrive at the conclusion He wants for you. That requires some level of trust. But nothing pleases God more than trust in Him. I don't have to trust the police officer. I just have to trust the community that he represents to do what he says to do. Mm. You want to pray? Yes. Mighty God, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for this community of believers. They really are my family. Holy, holy one, those who do the will of God are the family of God. Lord, I pray we would be moved by your spirit to help meet each other's needs. That nobody in this congregation would feel alone. That nobody in this congregation would be subject to fear. Lord, that we would help bear one another's burdens so that we would learn to carry our own load. You are amazing, Lord. Your ways are better than our ways. We love you. We thank you. You have brought us out of the darkness and into the light. Lord, our desire is not to be controlling. It's to be controlled by you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So Monday is uh, Corinthians at my house. Uh, Wednesday's church here. Uh, and then we go to a uh, men's retreat. 11.